Welcome into another episode of Behind the Catch Fence. I'm your host, David Hoffman. Today is a special edition of Behind the Catch Fence, as I had the privilege to have a conversation with legendary sportscaster Alan Bestwick. Motorsports fans all around the world are familiar with his voice, as he called NASCAR races for various networks like ESPN and NBC, as well as IndyCar races for ESPN. In this conversation, Bestwick and I talk about his rise to the top, his career, his top moments in the booth, as well as his thoughts on what the state of the IndyCar series is right now. So, with all that in mind, sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Hey David, how are you? Good, how are you? I'm good, thank you. It's a pleasure to uh, be on FaceTime with you right now. No, it's all good, man. How you doing? How's school? Uh, trying to get through uh, sophomore year. It's been kind of a pain <laughs> in a little bit, but yeah, especially online stuff. But you know, you yeah. make do with it. It's all you can do. It's uh, it's a strange world we're in right now. There's yeah. uh, there's no way around it, and uh, you know we do the best we can. Mm-hmm. What have you been uh, up to with the whole pandemic? <sighs> Bored out of my skull. If you want to know the truth. <laughs> Um, not much. It's, it's slow. I mean, all the, you know, all the normal business that I would do is shut down. And, um, I've got a couple of uh, business projects that I'm working on, um, um, consulting project, but there's um, not much you can do with that right now either. So it's mm-hmm. just kind of sitting there, you know, we're, Definitely. we're all just kind of hanging out, waiting for, waiting for things to, to resume. You actually, you're lucky if you've got classes to worry about right now, because otherwise, uh, Mostly, what you worry about is when, what you know, what what shape your business is going to be in when it's time to do business again. Right. That's 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 about it right now. So, um, but you know, we make the best of it. We go yeah. on, and um, and you know, I'm uh, I'm sure once we get things going, there'll be plenty to do. But right now, we just you know, we don't know. Yeah, definitely. I guess yeah. You know, I guess we'll start off with this. Uh, this is uh, behind the catch fence, uh, IndyCar podcast, and. You know, pleasure to have you on, you know, all of your years of experience. And, uh, yeah. There's, there's a lot of years there, yeah. <laughs> You're still looking really good for, how old are you now? Um, I'm, I'm 58. And, you um, don't look at a bit, I'm just saying that. Still grinding, but it's all good. Yeah. I uh, heard that you are uh, working on a book. Is that still uh, a thing? I am chipping away at it very slowly. Um I don't really think anybody would care much about my story in particular, but I've got a lot of stories um, and a lot of experiences that I think, um, you know, there's a segment of people that might find uh, find enjoyable. And so I'm, I'm working at it slowly. I'm not um, I'm not pressing terribly hard to get it done. But uh, but as time finds itself, I pick away at it here and there and, and hopefully it'll turn out OK. I'm sure like there's going to be millions of stories you have to have especially with all your experience but yeah just to start off with questions uh you know give us a little bit of overview of uh, just growing up what sparked your interest in motorsports and broadcasting yeah sure i you know i i couldn't tell you the exact moment but um i was always fascinated by the guy on the radio um and and uh, radio in particular uh, growing up um Providence, Rhode Island. I grew up in Rhode Island. Providence was a great radio market. Uh, a, a lot of uh, really great radio stations, and you were within distance uh, because AM radio was the dominant thing at that time. You were within distance of listening to all the Boston stations and all the New York stations, 
And you could get things in from Chicago and St. Louis and Charlotte and, and all these places um, uh, during the night. So somewhere in there, that kind of captivated me that that was something I wanted to do. And uh, the racing thing, when I was a kid, my dad had a, a little junkyard late model race car with uh, some of his buddies at, um, that uh, they kept in, you know, in the garage of our house and worked on there and so on. And um, so Saturday nights in the summer meant going to the local racetrack and, and um, watching my dad's car race. And, and God knows what that was like for my mom with uh, me and my two sisters running all over the place. But that's kind of where the, the interest in, uh, in racing developed. And I read that you uh, got your start just uh, calling, you know, PA announcing for dirt racing. What was kind of the, you know, the most difficult part just starting to get into it? Was there like a specific thing that you were just kind of, you know, you harped on and it got frustrating? No, we kind of made it up as we went. Um, The story of my getting started was I was actually, um, I was working uh, at a student radio station um, at my high school and... I was at the races one night with my dad, literally. Um, this was, you know, he he got out of racing, having a race car when I was probably 10 years old, nine years old. Uh, couldn't afford it anymore. And we were at the races one night, and um, we happened upon the promoter uh, in the midway. And um, my dad and the promoter got into a conversation, and my dad said, you know, yeah, my kid's uh, wanting to be a, a sports announcer. And the promoter said, oh, yeah, follow me. Um, literally marched up the steps to the, the, the tower and tapped the announcer on the shoulder and said, let the kid do the street stocks. <laughs> wow. That's and, one way um, of getting thrown into it. And, uh, and I jumped in and, uh, I kept coming back every week. Uh, wasn't getting paid, but they didn't tell me to stay away either. And, um, so I just kept coming back every week and, um, and that was fun. And then, uh, you know, I, I graduated from high school and went off into, the world and and so on but that's kind of that was the first racing experience that i had was i just jumped in wow that's incredible just you know then going into like the college years what kind of experience did you know what was the most valuable experience that you had just you know working your way and just continuing to perfect your craft well i i didn't go to college um i attended college for about two-thirds of one year oh, wow. but by the time i got to college uh i was working already at um uh a couple of radio stations. Um, I had done already before I graduated high school, I had done football and basketball and baseball on the school radio station. And I was working as a disc jockey back when there were such things, um, at the local AM radio station in the town where we worked at. And, and I kind of, um, I I mean, I couldn't afford college is the, is the bottom line. And, I went to a university that wasn't exactly a good fit for me. And I really wasn't interested in, in, um, I was more interested in finding a full-time job in radio, which I did. And, uh, so I, I left school and went to work at a radio station in Norwich, Connecticut as a disc jockey. And, um, that was 18 years old and just kept going. Wow. That's, I don't, yeah, I, I know I've never even read anywhere just about you. I know you'd mentioned a couple years ago just about, you know, getting into like a good college, but I had no idea just, you know, just so kind of with that process of, you know, being a disc jockey at 18, just, um, you know, how, how did you, uh, what, what were the work hours like and just like kind of grinding out just a little by little type of thing? Yeah. Yeah. So I worked from, um, I was on the air from 630 to midnight, Monday through Friday. And then on Sunday afternoons from 12 to 6, um, 
and you know you were always there a couple hours earlier you you had responsibilities to voice commercials for you know when different things were put in your little inbox and um you know it was just learning on the fly i mean um a lot of listening to other people i i listened to radio stations out of new york all the time uh those were the best of the best and um, I listened a lot. I paid attention a lot. I, I tried to understand um, what worked and why. Um, not that I had the knowledge to really filter that through at that time, but you know, you you learn from making mistakes. Yeah, the freedom you had in those days in radio that you don't have now um, in radio, but you do have in forms like this, um, social media. Uh, things like that is to make mistakes. Uh, now radio is so programmed and everything's you know pre-voiced and tracked and you know you're 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 really narrow-lined on what you can do. Uh, back then, radio was local radio, so I was on the air for you know six, uh, five and a half hours every night, and you know it was it was on me to make mistakes, to learn from them, to to try and grow. Uh, to try and get better. I mean, I was on the air the night John Lennon was shot. Wow. On the on the radio at that time. And, you know, there were some things out of that experience I took away from, from handling a live, developing situation. I mean, I was 18 years old, mm -hmm. you know, and this story fell out of the sky. Uh, so, you know, that, that was the freedom, just to learn and to make mistakes and to grow from them. And then, obviously, 1986, you joined MRN, the Motor Racing Network. Uh, how did that come to fruition? Yeah, that was um, coincidence, luck. Um, it's an it's it's a kind of involved story, but see if you can follow me while I connect the dots here. At that radio station in Connecticut that I was working at as the disc jockey, one of the advertisers was Stafford Speedway, which is a NASCAR-sanctioned half-mile racetrack that uh, that's always been considered one of the best short tracks in America, and. They were a big advertiser on the station. Well, I sort of followed what was going on there, and when one of their commercials would play, I'd have something to say after it. So I became known to them um, uh, because of that. And then when I, you know, when I had a, a night off because I did work nights, I, you know, and I'd go to the races or something, I was, you know, welcomed and recognized and, and that kind of thing. Uh, so advanced that a couple of jobs down the road. I was working in Washington, D.C. at a radio network there. It doesn't exist anymore, but it, at that time it was called the Mutual Broadcasting System. And we were at the National Association of Broadcasters Radio Convention in Dallas, Texas in September of 85. And I ran into the guy that was running MRN, who used to be the PR director at Stafford Speedway. I hadn't seen him in, I don't know, four years, five years, but we had a nice conversation. And um, maybe six months later, he called me, said he had a job that, that had come open, and would I interview for it? And uh, and I did, and I got the job. I just find it interesting just how, like, a lot I've, – I've learned just a lot just asking people, but it just seems like it's just a connections type of business where it's not – you know, I feel like they'll take someone that's, you know – I guess talent level, like they'll take some, like if they know somebody and like know their work ethic and everything else, it just seems like it is so much easier, not easier, but you know, just with having those connections and being able to, mm -hmm. you know, just at the right exact time, like having a job opening, like you had mentioned, like all the dots have being connected just like that. Just 
I've, you know, I've heard a lot of luck involved with the business and yeah, it's, it's about the network you have, keeping that network alive, staying in touch with that network. It's also about the trail you leave, um, how you go about your business, um, you know, and, and then there's a little bit of timing and luck involved in it too. Um, you, you know, but I generally find, uh, that old saying, you know, luck is where preparation meets opportunity. I find that to be true. Um, have I been very lucky? Yes. I've worked very hard to be prepared for when those opportunities came along to be very lucky. And obviously, you know, you got to work as a race reporter and then co-lead announcer with Joe Moore and Barney Hall, obviously one of the, you know, two of the best to ever do it. Just what were some of the, what were some like the key takeaways that you got just learning from them and like kind of being alongside them for a handful of years? Well, Barney, um, Barney was the guy that invented the job basically uh, after Ken Squire, who was Barney's predecessor uh, before he moved to TV. So from, from Barney and from Ken, um, a style was developed that was MRN. And what I always found was some people got that style instinctively and some people didn't. Um, if you got it instinctively, um, then it was great. Um, it was fun. It was, uh, a good group to be around. Uh, if you didn't, there almost wasn't anything anybody could do to help you pick it up. You almost just had to have a feel for it. Barney was, was the ultimate understated person. Uh, Barney was a mountain man. Barney did not like, did not want to be famous, did not want to be recognized. Um, but he loved what he did and he was very good at what he did. But he was the king at being understated. And uh, I, 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 one of the early times I was with Barney, and I don't remember where it was. It probably was at Daytona, but I don't remember where or exactly when. But I remember him saying to me, you know, you can never go wrong with doing things with a little class and a little dignity. That's a direct quote. And uh, that's been... Uh, philosophy that stuck with me from then till today a um, little class and a little dignity I know we see some people sometimes that by being loud and and look at me and so on get some some notoriety never been my thing um, and I think a lot of that was the influence of Barney which was you know it's not about us we're here to cover the event it's about the people competing in the event and then just, you know, then joining NBC, TNT in 99 until 06. Uh, you know, you've been able to work with a lot of former drivers in the booth, Benny Parsons, Wally Dallenbach, Dale Jarrett. Uh, what do you look for in a great color commentator? And, like, what's the preparation look like, you know, between, you know, that kind of dynamic? Yeah, I think um, the best of the best have a way of telling you what's going on why with very few words and doing it in a way that's fun for you to understand um you know benny benny was such a a, a wonderful human being and and kind of a jolly guy that people misunderstood what an intense competitor he was as a racer um benny cared passionately about the sport and about the people in the sport and cared passionately about the people in the grandstand and, and doing a good job for them. Um, but he also understood that, that, you know, 
Um, this is racing. It's got to be fun. That's why people are watching. That's why they're paying their tickets to, to come through the, the turnstiles, to have fun. And uh, and he got that right away. Benny also understood that, that, that a, uh, a chemistry doesn't just happen by accident. Um, just like with a marriage or a relationship uh, uh, with a partner, uh, uh, you know, I mean, you have to work at it. And uh, when Benny and I were, were, were hired to, to work together, um, one of the first conversations that, that he and I had, he said to me, Alan, you and I are going to get to be great friends. And we did. Um, I lived in Charlotte at that time. We went and played golf every Tuesday, just about every Tuesday. Um, we spent all of our time sharing a car uh, at the race weekends, a lot of meals together. Um, just uh, still to this day, um, a wonderful dear friend uh, that I miss. But that it's it's about it's about having a relationship, learning each other's strengths and weaknesses, playing to each other's strengths, covering each other's weaknesses, um, and um, and 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 it, you know that that doesn't happen without some conversation and without some work. And then you know just along with you and uh, you know. You and Benny, I know, I really wanted to bring this up. Uh, just, um, you know, when what what went into the uh, the Herbie fully loaded when you guys were you know yeah <laughs> in you know doing that broadcast. Like I know, obviously it wasn't live, but how did you guys you know do the play by play and commentate on that? So we were at uh, what was then California Speedway. I'm not even sure what the sponsor name of it is now because I've lost track. I think it's Auto Club still, maybe. Mm-hmm. But we were there for a race weekend, and um, they were shooting scenes for the movie. And and at the end of Saturday, so we did the broadcast of the 300-mile, what was then Bush Series race on Saturday. And then they had set up uh, another quote-unquote broadcast booth um, in one of the suites a couple doors down. And we went in there. And, you know, they have a rundown of what they want the movie to, to be and, and that kind of thing. And we recorded, you know, just a bunch of stuff. And here, give me this line, give me that line. You know, we sat there and did did our thing. We probably spent two hours um, on that part. And then many months later, um, when they had finished shooting the movie and they were editing and so on, uh, they wanted the, the, the play-by-play bits that were just going to be a voice uh, in the background of the action. So I went to a studio in Charlotte and they had a, a crew in Los Angeles linked up and, um, they had a video monitor and they would play me the scene of what the car was doing. And they had written out some things and I said, well, how about I just do what I think? And yeah, great. You know, so they'd show me a scene, wind the tape back and then they'd hit the record button and I would just throw some things out there. And, um, two hours, two and a half hours, maybe. And the next time I saw it was uh, in a movie theater and um, came out great. It was, uh, it, it was fun. It, you know, I mean, we weren't involved in the product, you know, I mean, we weren't down there hanging out with Lindsay Lohan and Michael Keaton, right. but um, you know, it's one of those things that it still lives today. I still, I, you know, I get people ask me about it. I get, um, I get royalty checks from it. Uh, they're not big, but I still get them today. And um, you know, it's fun. It's not something you expect to do in your lifetime. But uh, then, you know, you joined ESPN in 2007, you know, being a pit reporter, NASCAR Now, NASCAR Countdown host, play-by-play until 2014. 
Uh, since you've been able to do both positions, uh, pit reporter and play-by-play, like what's the what are some differences that you've noticed just over the years in terms of preparation and just you know weekly routine? Yeah, sure. Um, pit reporting is about uh, footwork. It's like being a beat cop. You know, you've got an assignment, literally a physical number of pits and cars that you are responsible for, and and um, you're constantly on the move. Uh, checking on all of those cars, following up anything that you see, listening to the broadcast. If they say something about such and such a car, you're on your way to go follow up. Um, supporting that storyline, providing information, getting that information. It's, it's, it's like being a beat cop. You're, you're always on the move. Um, play-by-play job, you're responsible for every car uh, and everything. And I always felt like, for me, the the play-by-play job was to knit everything together, make it one story. So we've got four pit reporters, two analysts, a pit studio, you know, all these voices, all these pictures, all these sounds, all these replays. And my job was to tie it all together into one storyline and do that in the context of understanding how people watch television. So these races are long. You know, the Indy 500's three hours. Not everybody there at lap 150 was watching at lap 50. So the constant understanding of how to refresh those people without ticking off the people that have been there for the whole 150 laps and making them, why are you repeating yourself? Well, because people tune in and out with those with those remotes constantly. So that was, that was the job as play-by-play. Add accent. Make it one story and play to the strengths of your teammates and let them do their jobs. And just, uh, you know, what, what do you feel uh, was what was more enjoyable for you, pit reporter or being the play-by-play guy? Or is it kind of just was it 50-50 type of thing? Or, or yeah, there are different jobs. I, I enjoyed it all. Look, I've, I've done everything. I enjoyed it all. Um, it, it's It's very different. Um, the two jobs are there's a satisfaction and an importance to each of them. I enjoyed it all. Uh, whatever the job was, um, I was being paid to be there and do something that, you know, a lot of people would do for free. And I had the best seat in the house. I had access to all the important people, um, surrounded by good people and good teammates. You, you know, couldn't ask for more. And then with being a pit reporter, how much of like the questions were pre like thought of, or and then like like how much like what was like the the ratio of pre-planned questions or just on the fly as as like you know information comes in? Yeah, I think I think that uh, that that's the beauty of the job is it's it's always live. So, um, you know what what was just discussed beforehand as they've tossed to me, how does, how does that tie into what I'm about to do? Or or does it not even, do I just go off in a completely different direction? What's the most important thing we need to learn from this person right now? Um, you know, never bury the lead. The most important thing comes first. You know, that's why they put that headline at the top of the page, lead with the headline. And, um, a lot of it was just reacting and, and understand, you know, okay, what's the headline? asking yourself that question over and over. What do I need to find out from this person now? That's it. 
And then, uh, you know, you became uh, the lead announcer for ESPN's IndyCar coverage in 2014 up until 2018. Uh, you know, you've been able to cover both NASCAR and IndyCar for years, uh, just throughout your career. What, like, and just from your eyes, your point of view, just how do the two sports differ uh, just from each other from a cultural perspective? Culturally, I think that they've actually gotten a lot more similar. Um, for a number of years, NASCAR was more of a mechanics sport. And IndyCar had transitioned from being a mechanics sport to an engineer's sport sooner. Um, then NASCAR made that transition. There's not really any difference between them other than the look and maybe some of the terminology. But, and that's why I think you're finding today um, there being a little more easier interplay between the two the competitors and the two sports and, and where, where, where there was a little bit of, a, I think, a, an unnecessary rivalry for many years. Um, they're the same thing. Just the terminology is different. But NASCAR is all engineering these days. It's all engineering. And that's what IndyCar is. It's engineering and strategy. And um, uh, I didn't find them to be very different at all. And obviously NASCAR, it's been the most popular motorsport in America you know, the past two decades. Uh, in your eyes, what is the state of IndyCar right now? And you know, what are they doing right? And what, are they, what do you feel they need to improve on just to you know, get back to where they were in the car, champ car days? Yeah, uh, well, part of it is, um, you know, that NASCAR took advantage of open-wheel racing's problems to ascend to that that um, level of dominance. Um, you know, there was opportunity there in, in the mid-'90s and late-'90s and so on, and, uh, and NASCAR took advantage of that, not by anything they were consciously trying to do, but it just happened. Um, IndyCar right now has had to take big steps to understand you know Indy, IndyCar's problem is they've always been very divisive between officials competitors owners and you know the sanctioning body and owners we're always on this um, just opposite paths of what they thought the sport needed and what I've seen out of today's IndyCar management pre-Pensky was an understanding that the sport had to be united Everybody had to be pulling the rope in the same direction. And Jay Fry and Mark Miles and, and the IndyCar leadership team um, worked very hard at that. And we're doing that. Um, and that, that unity of direction has created a lot of momentum around IndyCar. Um, they understand that you have to get the costs of competing under control. You have to do it. Uh, you can't sell sponsorships without an audience to sell sponsorships to. That includes both live attendance and television. They, all of these things don't happen in a vacuum. And there's been a very conscious effort on, on their part to create a unified direction, not just here's what we're going to do. And you're seeing that from NASCAR too, by the way. Um, you know, you can't just do what's best for the sanctioning body. You can't do just what's best for the tracks. You can't do just what's best for the drivers and team owners. And there's no one solution that's going to be best for all of them. But if you get everybody together pulling the rope in the same direction and everybody makes a little compromise, you can get someplace. So I like, you know, IndyCar's gotten their costs under control. 
Uh, they've created a little bit of a stability to the schedule. Current situation, you know, obviously is, is, is an enormous exception for everyone, every sport. Um, and that, that has gathered some positive vibes that fans feel. They feel it. And, you know, people can't have fun watching television if you're not having fun making television. And like it or not, these drivers are making television. They're having a lot more fun than they used to. And it transmits through that screen to people who are watching. So they've got they've done a good job of creating momentum. And you're seeing NASCAR work hard at unifying its message and and in turn try to return that fun feeling that it had in the late 90s and 2000s and so on. Um, and, uh, and, and they're on a good path too, I think. And now like you throw in Roger Penske as, you know, the new, you know, owner, you know, obviously the Brickyard and IndyCar. How does he, like, how much of a difference do you feel he's going to make a, you know, just obviously circumstances with the pandemic, nobody expects that. But, yeah. you know, once that, you know, is gone, like how does, how much of a difference will Penske make just as the series continues to try and, you know, get back off the ground? Yeah, David, I think I think the biggest thing that Roger Penske brings to the table, number one is leadership, uh, number two is passion, but number three is his contact list. IndyCar's been pursuing a third engine manufacturer for several years. Well, Roger Penske can pick up the phone and get the head guy at any auto manufacturer in the world on the phone now. He can get any meeting set up now. So what Roger Penske brings with his global connections is the ability for IndyCar to take the next step forward in development. And, and with all credit to the Holman George family, they understood that they had taken it as far as they could and that what it needed to push it back to that next level needed someone else's expertise. And Roger was the perfect guy. He's got his, his whole organization has all the connections globally, worldwide, um, both where Manufacturers are concerned where sponsors are concerned, where capital is concerned, where television is concerned. Um, Roger is in tune with all of that. And so he and his organization have the ability to take that next step. And that's where they were at. And, and again, credit to the Holman George family for understanding that that's what it needed and giving the sport the opportunity to do that. And, uh, you know, recently iRacing has become a big thing just to go to for fans, just to, you know, still be able to get the entertainment just of racing, you know, with the pandemic. Uh, does, how do you see iRacing changing the landscape for motorsports as a whole in the future? I think in the immediate, um, and I know that wasn't your question, but in the immediate, it's a way for the sport to keep in touch with its fans. Uh, when there isn't any racing to go see, just like, you know, um, I mean, showing replays of the masters isn't the same as having the masters on the track. Uh, but, but auto racing by having such an advanced developed digital platform um, is able to provide some content to keep engaged with its fans uh, while all this is going on. I think that's been of tremendous value, tremendous um, going forward. In my opinion, the next big step for auto racing, and I know it's been worked on and being worked on, um, is virtual reality. So now when you're sitting on your couch on a Sunday afternoon and they're racing at Laguna Seca, you might be sitting in your sim rig or at, at, and, and virtually in that event yourself. Um, 
I think that's another level of engagement for people uh, and for gamers. And and let's face it, the audience for esports is much younger than the audience that's showing up and going to the grandstands. But if you get someone engaged in the sport through esports, when the race comes to their town, hopefully you get them to buy a ticket and come out to the racetrack. So that's the next level of it for me. Um, I expected to already have seen it. And we haven't yet. So it's still out there somewhere. And I think it's coming soon. And I just, you know, one final type of thing I'd like to cap off this, you know, incredible conversation. Uh, you've been able to call numerous races over the years. Uh, what would you say are your top five races? I have a feeling number one of what it is, but. You know, that's really hard. Um, because it's been a lot of years and a lot of races and a lot of places and a lot of people. And when you, when you try to make a list like that, I know I'm forgetting something. Um, because uh, I tend to be a very forward-looking person, and I'm always thinking about the next one and not the last one. Um, if you had to, if you had to pluck a few out, Daytona 500s or Daytona in general, Indianapolis 500s, Rickyard 400s, um, they crowd the top of the list. Uh, I'm a I'm a huge fan of the history of the sport. Uh, to me. There are no two more important places in the sport than Indianapolis and Daytona. So any event at those two tracks uh, ranks very high uh, with me. The, um, the Ryan Hunter Ray win uh, in the 500 when he and Elio went back and forth and, and so on, that was um, completely exhilarating, thrilling, exciting. Um, you know, uh, any of the Brickyard 400s, uh, to me, uh, you know, Jeff Gordon's win there, huge, phenomenal. What a scene, what an atmosphere. Um, understanding what it meant to his family, Paul Menard's win at the Brickyard was just uh, really cool. Daytona, well, look, pick a race at Daytona. Um, might be my favorite place on the planet. Um, I did live there for, for a number of years, and, and um, but... I rarely find myself walking out of Daytona not having said, wow, wasn't that cool uh, for any race. I, I know you're probably thinking of the 2001 July race with, uh, with Junior. Um, obviously a special night for, for many reasons. Um, personally for me, that was NBC's debut as the, the package holder. Um, the whole Earnhardt story, the, um, just the way that it, that it, that it played out. Um, having left Daytona five months before under the most awful of circumstances where literally you could hear the crickets chirping in the parking lot while all the cars were still lined up trying to get out of there uh, was the creepiest, um, most depressing thing, saddest thing I've, I've, I've experienced um, atmospherically at a racetrack. And walking out of that place after that checkered flag that night um, was just something everybody needed, uh, me included. And it was, uh, it was great. That's the race I get asked about most often. And, um, and it was a very special night for many reasons. I, yeah, I had a feeling the 01 Pepsi 400, just, I know it was on NBCSN the other night and you, you just can't help, but get goosebumps every single lap. Those fast, you know, those last 10 laps, it was just one of the you know most special nights in all the motorsports. It was, um, it was certainly fun. It was certainly thrilling. Um, I, um, 
I look back on it fondly and, um, and, and then, like I said, without question, it's the one I'm asked about more than any other. But you, you know, I know you absolutely killed that call. Definitely. You know, just, just, you know, just understand like what kind of, how was the, just kind of diving into that call itself? What, um, you know, what was kind of your mindset as the lap started to wind down and kind of realizing this could actually happen? Well, I'm not a, I'm not a, a rehearser. I'm not a pre-planner. I don't write things out. I don't, you know, um, that's just not me. Um, but I remember this distinctly and you're probably going to be the first one that hears this story. Uh, cause I don't know that I've ever told it before publicly. Um, the Talladega race, the prior fall when his dad made the big rally to win. Well, I was in the broadcast booth for MRN that day. And, you know, you're looking out across the track toward turns three and four. And it seemed like every time the field went through turns three and four, that black three car was going under a couple cars or around a couple cars or every lap. Well, fast forward to Daytona and we get into those last laps. And I remember looking out at turns three and four and it seemed like every lap or every other lap that red eight car was going under somebody or around somebody in three and four. And I had the thought in my head, wow, I've seen this before. Look just like his old man. But, you know, when you're doing a broadcast, you have a lot of thoughts that you don't, you know, a lot of, you know, that you don't speak. And it just, okay, on to the next. What's that, you know? And, um, and I guess that was the seed. When they came off a of turn four, um, those words came out. Not planned, not thought of. Um, but that was, I, I, I know now in hindsight, that was the seed that sparked that. As I looked out there at one point and I thought to myself, and it's one of those, you know, I had the thought and then you go, ooh, you know, but. Man, I've seen this before. It looks like just look like his old man. Whoa. Okay, next. You know, and so that's how it happened. And yeah, you know, just thank you so much just for uh, you know taking this time. Uh, you know, I know obviously not best circumstances with the pandemic, but I really appreciate uh, just everything you've done just for NASCAR, IndyCar, just the entire like just broadcasting, just you know everything with sports broadcasting. It's you know just everything you've done has been incredible, and I really appreciate you coming on. I, uh, I'm happy to do it. I wish you nothing but the best in your, uh, in your journey forward. And, uh, and let's hope we get back to racing and all the other sports soon so we can all, uh, uh, get back to what we enjoy the best. Yeah. Thank you so much and, uh, stay safe and healthy and, uh, I'll, thank you. Yeah. You know, I'll talk to you later then. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care. I hope you guys all enjoyed that incredible conversation with Alan Bestwick. I know I thoroughly enjoyed just hearing about all of his knowledge and experiences up in the broadcast booth over the years. Before I go, make sure to follow this podcast on Twitter, at Behind Catch, and Instagram, at Behind underscore the underscore catch underscore fence. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you guys later.